who wrote the second to last uh, song doesn't mind our Calvinistic changes. Uh, James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. This is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, part of the suzerainty treaty that God has given to us. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen. Father God, we do desire that we would be humbled before you, to walk humbly with our God. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would grant, not just to this congregation, but to congregations throughout this nation, the kind of repentance that leads to the revival that you have ordained for your church. Be pleased, Father, to anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach your word and enable us to be hearers and doers of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the modern errors that you're going to find quite frequently in the modern evangelical church is the idea that we don't need to repent in order to be saved. And that once we are saved, we don't need to repent either. And it just mystifies me why people would come to this because the scriptures are so, so clear. John Calvin pointed out that you can summarize the prophets in the Old Testament with the one word, repentance. <laughs> Uh, John the Baptist came with his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was repent and believe the gospel. And he commanded his disciples to bring a message of repentance to those that they came across. And the result is given in Mark 6:12. So they went out and preached that people should repent. Over and over again in the New Testament, there is a call to repentance. And it's so clear that to me, it just seems there has to be a veil, there has to be a blindness over people's eyes when they reject this. Now, part of the reason, I think, for a lack of message of repentance is because of the carnality in the church and the carnality of the, the preachers themselves. Part of the problem is the focus on trying to attract people into the congregations. Uh, for example, I talked to uh, one of the really high-profile church uh, growth experts who has written quite a number of articles and has been featured in quite a few magazines. And he had taken over uh, one congregation, uh, was, uh, 50 people, struggling congregation, and he had asked if he, they could just give him full reign to do whatever and he would uh, cause their church to grow, and he did. Uh, in just a few months, he took up from 50 to over 1,000 people. I think a couple years later, it was 2,000. I mean, it just kept growing. It was a monster church. And so I went to this church just to see what was going on and examine the process that he had gone through. And I interviewed him afterward, and I said, you know, what are your strategies for church growth? And he started off by saying, well, the first and most essential thing that you need to do is remove anything that uh, is uncomfortable for unbelievers. Uh, and as he began talking about what he meant by that, uh, the hair on my neck began to stand on end because he said he very deliberately removes any notion of repentance from his sermons, from the scripture readings, from the hymns, because again, he doesn't want to make any people feel uncomfortable and leave the congregation. He says they don't have singing because most people aren't comfortable with singing, and so they had choirs. 
and they don't have communion because that's an exclusive kind of a of a uh, of a sacrament. And when I challenged him on that, he says, "No, no, no. You got to understand. You got to hook them before you can crook them. Crooking, you know, the shepherd's crook." And he says, what we need to do is we need to attract the people into the congregation. And I says, well, do you even believe in repentance? You, oh, yeah, we have that on Wednesday night. He says, Wednesday night is where the real worship service goes on. That's where uh, the communion happens. That's where the calls to discipleship happen and uh, calls to repentance. And a seminary professor there that uh, was one of my uh, seminary guys, he asked him, well, how many people come to real church on Wednesday night? And he kind of looked blank and a little bit sheepish, and he said, uh, 50? <laughs> the real church hadn't grown at all. There was 50 people, you know, were coming to the, the worship service. What was going on on Sunday morning was entertainment where people were being made to feel comfortable in their sins, to feel like Christians, even though they really were not uh, Christians. And so part of the problem is that the church growth movement uh, has been trying to attract people in unbiblical ways. Carnality is part of the problem, but part of the problem is also theological. There has been a form of dispensationalism, and not all dispensationalists hold to this, but there is a form of dispensationalism that's been taught over the past 50 years that have said that repentance is only for the Jews. That relates to the kingdom. We're in the church age now, and there will be repentance in the kingdom in the future. There was repentance back, uh, you know, in the past and... But that's just for the Jews. It is not uh, for the Gentiles. All we need to do is to believe. And of course, these folks would relegate the books of James uh, to the Jews as well many times. Uh, but the author of this book does not see it that way, not at all. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, the same James who wrote this book says, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. God has granted to the Gentiles repent. I don't know how you could get any more clear than that statement. The last words of Jesus to his disciples included this commandment, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Luke 24, verse 47. All nations, not just the Jews. And again, I don't know how you can get around that. According to Acts 26, verse 20, Paul's whole message was to declare, quote, first, to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That's Acts 26, uh, verse 20. And so that's just a little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to get out of the way in case you've run across people who once again try to pit uh, the Apostle Paul against James. They're always trying to pit those two against each other. And I, can, I think you can see, just from the scriptures I have read, James stands in solidarity with the Apostle Paul, with the 12 apostles, and with Jesus, and with John the Baptist, for that matter, who called the Roman soldiers to repentance, and the Old Testament prophets who called the Gentile nations to repentance. It, it simply is not true that repentance is only, for, uh, is only for the Jews. Now, we've not quite finished with our housekeeping yet. What is equally disconcerting to me is the false definition of repentance that is current in, in uh, many circles in America. Uh, some people, in my view, completely define repentance away in two ways. Uh, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's both of these ways. But the first uh, way is to define repentance as being simply an intellectual agreement with certain doctrines 
And then secondly, to define repentance as being identical with faith, as being the same thing as, as faith. And I think what's going on here is that Satan is trying to short-circuit uh, repentance. If he can't do it this way, he'll do it this way. There's all kinds of ways in which he tries to short-circuit repentance. And if he can short-circuit repentance, he can short-circuit the kind of revival and joy and healing that repentance has always ushered the church into. Um, Pentingill was uh, C.I. Schofield's right-hand man at the Philadelphia School of the Bible. And he said, strictly speaking... The word repentance means a change of mind. Since it is not possible for an unbeliever to become a believer without changing his mind, it's therefore unnecessary to say anything about it. Uh, his conclusion is repentance and faith are identical. They're synonyms. But because repentance could be misunderstood by people, we shouldn't even talk about repentance. We'll just talk about faith. Now, we can point the finger out there. But unfortunately, I have run across two or three Reformed writers in our generation who have taken the same definition of repentance and faith. And because some of you guys have read their articles, these are good guys. I mean, they've done a lot of good stuff, but they're majorly messed up on this. I thought I, I should um, uh, point it out to you. John Robbins says, The act of faith is the act of repentance. Repentance and belief are the same thing. He says they're different words. But they're really exactly the same thing. Uh, e. Calvin Beisner says uh, the same thing, and I love this guy. He has written some awesome stuff, but this is a big mistake. This is a huge mistake to make. He says, repentance is faith, and faith is repentance. Well, let me tell you something. This is not the Reformed view. It is not the biblical view, and if you hold to it, it is guaranteed to lead in one of two directions, and they're both extremes that will get you into trouble if you hold to this distinction. First of all, it's not Reformed. And there are thousands of quotes that I could give on this. Let me just give you two. Uh, John Calvin said in his Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 2, Paragraph 5, there he reckons repentance and faith as two different things. Though they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished. Uh, Westminster Confession, larger and shorter catechism, very, very clear. I mean, they define the two in totally different ways, different chapters, you know, that are given to them. But let me just give you one little brief quote. Repentance is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as faith in Christ. Two different things, both must be preached. And so it's not reformed. But more importantly, it is not biblical. Uh, first of all, the words of Jesus. He says, repent and believe. Mark 1, verse 15. He doesn't say repentance is belief. He says people must have both repentance and belief. Uh, Paul sums up his ministry in Acts 20, verse 21 in these words. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have no problem whatsoever in saying that they're inseparable. Faith and repentance are linked together. Where you find one, you're always going to find the other. They're two sides of the same coin. I mean, I've always said that. Reformed people have always said that. In fact, in your worship notes, you'll uh, see there's a, a great quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon where he says, they're Siamese twins. You know, they're joined at the waist. They can't be separated. When one is sick, the other one is sick. Uh, and so that is true. Repentance and faith are part of the same act of conversion, and throughout our lives, they act in concert. But Scripture does distinguish the two. Hebrews 6, verse 1 speaks of the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. 
One foundation, two things in it. The foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, please bear with me because I've got some more housekeeping items I need to deal with before we can get to this passage. And the first is to say there are serious ramifications if we do not make these kinds of distinctions. Obviously, if we've got a counterfeit repentance, we're not going to enter into the kind of blessings and rewards that this passage implies, and I've outlined them for you, the rewards that are implied there uh, on, on your sheet. But in your outline, I also mention another serious problem. The failure to distinguish faith from repentance has ironically led to errors in two extremes of the, of the, of the reform spectrum. You've got the traditional reform view in the middle, and then you've got the extremes that have adopted uh, the definition on both sides, they have adopted the definition, faith and repentance are the same thing, okay? For example, John Robbins and Norman Shepard uh, definitely don't get along too well, okay? They're on the opposite extremes that are out there, and John Robbins rightly criticizes Norman Shepard for failing to distinguish between justification by faith alone and a justification which is by works. And that's a very important distinction. And if you've not seen, uh, not listened to the sermon on justification by works, uh, you'll see once you understand the distinction in James, it's like, wow, you can read it along. It's so easy to understand. You can see you have to know the distinctions in order to benefit from the results of those two things. But uh, he rightly criticizes Norman Shepard on that. What he fails to realize is Norman Shepard is driven to that conclusion because he sees faith and repentance as being the same thing. Now, Norman Shepard accuses John Robbins of easy believism, but he fails to realize John Robbins is forced to his conclusion that it's purely an intellectual thing if he's to avoid the error that Norman Shepard has gotten himself into. If you do not distinguish between faith and repentance, you're automatically going to go to one of two poles. It's the reform distinction that keeps the balance uh, in the middle. And again, these are good guys, but it's a serious error that they have fallen into in both directions, I believe. In chapter 2, James can clearly distinguish between justification by faith alone in verse 23, justification by works alone, which, by the way, came many years later. The example that he gives came many years later, but he can distinguish it. Why? Because he understands the difference between faith and the repentance that faith produces. He understands those as being uh, uh, quite distinct. Now, if you don't follow all of that, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm giving it to those of you who have been reading in this area so that you can just watch out, you know, as you're reading through it. If you simply keep these distinctions, you don't need to know about all those errors. You'll automatically avoid those errors. Okay, so I'm bringing it up for the rest of you. Now, the moment a person is regenerated, God gives that person by degrees repentance and faith. And I say by degrees, not everybody has the same amount of faith or the same amount of repentance, but he gives by degrees repentance and faith and no true faith can exist apart from repentance and no true repentance can exist apart from faith, which means you cannot be saved if there is no repentance. It's impossible. Scripture makes it very clear we are... Uh, we are only saved if we repent of our sins. But the scripture is equally clear that repentance on its own does not save us. It is faith alone that has the ability to lay claim to God's salvation. You know, all repentance does is let go. Okay, it lets go and it turns away from something. Faith is the thing that lays claim to God. And so you keep those distinctions, you'll avoid, you'll avoid a lot of errors. Uh, when Robbins identifies faith and repentance as being the same thing, he's forced to redefine both 
as being purely intellectual uh, issues. Let me read you one of many, many scriptures that could be read that, that shows that uh, repentance includes the mind, the emotions, and the will. This is 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. And so now he's going to list the elements of repentance. He said, this is a sorrow that led to repentance. Now he's going to define that repentance. This sorrow leads to certain things. He says, what diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. Uh, look in your outlines at the definitions of repentance that I've put there. Uh, the confession indicates that God-given repentance has at least three components, and the underlined, the, a single underline shows, first of all, I'll just summarize this, an understanding, so it's a mental category here, an understanding of the filthiness and the odiousness of our sins as contrary to God's holy nature. Okay, and so it's an illumination of our understanding toward the sinfulness of sin, the holiness of God. Then it goes on to give the second component, and you can see the double underlined words, it is a sense of the filthiness and odiousness of sin and a grieving for and hatred for sin. So there's the emotions, there's the sensations. And then the third component is turning from sin and turning to God. There is the will. Now let me quickly read the other two definitions and you'll see that they are parallel. First is by A.W. Pink. He said, repentance is a supernatural an inward revelation from God, giving a deep consciousness of what I am in His sight, which causes me to loathe and condemn myself, resulting in a bitter sorrow for sin, a holy horror and hatred for sin, and a turning away from or forsaking of sin. And then the last definition, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, the last little bit of housekeeping before we go to our passage is that some people have the mistaken notion that repentance is only when we begin our Christian walk. It's just at conversion. But uh, Calvin and other writers have pointed out, since we sin until glory, our whole life is going to be a life of, of repentance, isn't it? Uh, our whole life is a faith walk, and our whole life is a repentance walk. And if we lack faith and repentance, we're not saints. What we are is Pharisees, if we lack repentance. And so if you feel discouraged that you have not been able to join the club of the perfect, you know, in this church, set your minds at ease. There is no club of the perfect in this church, right? There is a club, though, of people who long for holiness, who are pressing forward to holiness, who grieve every time that they sin, who confess their sins to God and confess their sins to one another. There is a club of people who are passionate about going forward and feel bad when they take some steps backward. But they persevere, they get up from their sins, and they walk forward on the path of holiness. But none of us has arrived yet. We are pursuing. Well, now that we've cleared away some of that housekeeping and... Uh, there's a lot of housekeeping because the house of evangelicalism is very dirty on this issue. But now we cleared that away, I want to highlight the descriptions James gives of this true repentance. And you can just sort of use this as a kind of self-examination. Is the repentance I have self-produced or is it a repentance that comes from God? 
First key word in our vocabulary should be submission or yielding. Submission or yielding to God. First part of verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Submission is uh, 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 not just an outward response, it's an inward attitude as well, but it does manifest itself outwardly, and the outward manifestation is in terms of obedience. Now, it's true, we may fall in that sin again. We may fall a number of times, but we get back up under the road of holiness. Our commitment is to obey. Let me just define this by a parable that Christ gave. Jesus said, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. And Jesus agreed. His point was that compliant attitudes are not necessarily the same thing as submission. Uh, submission, true submission, leads to obedience. And on the other side of the scale, a person can be outwardly even compliant and lack the inward uh, submission as well. You know, if a child says, sorry, you know, would you please forgive me? Or maybe goes and does something, you've commanded him to do something, but does it with such a rebellious attitude, the voice, the the, the, the look on the face and things like that make it very clear. There is no submission uh, internally. There is uh, rebellion and hostility. And so God looks at both the heart and the action to see the level of our repentance. Uh, Richard Manhalter le uh, lent me uh, last week um, uh, a book by Fizzler? Fizzell. Fizzell uh, called Returning to Holiness. And I highly recommend, in fact, it, it may be a book that uh, I'll have some of the leadership go through and maybe eventually have our whole congregation go through. But uh, excellent book that helps us to examine ourselves in this whole area of repentance. One of the things that shows no submission is to ask for forgiveness of God as a matter of course and make absolutely no plans to quit. Uh, look at the back of your worship notes, and this would be the fourth quote down by William Gurnell. And it's kind of difficult English, so let me retranslate that into modern English. He says, Take heed that you do not pray with a reservation. Be sure that you renounce what you want God to remit. Remit means to cancel out. God will never remove the guilt as long as you entertain the sin. It is the highest foolishness to desire God to forgive what you intend to commit. You might as well speak out and ask permission to sin without any consequences. Uh, there was a cartoon that somebody emailed uh, to me several years ago, and it, it was a cartoon of George Washington who's cut down, he's a little kid at this point, he's cut down yet another uh, cherry tree, I think it is, and uh, he's standing there over the cherry tree kind of looking smug and saying, I cannot tell a lie. And uh, the father's exasperated, and he says, all right, so you admit it, you always admit it. The question is, when are you going to stop doing it? You know, he's been cutting down all these cherry trees, and each time says, you know, <laughs> I admit. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And there are no evidences of submission if there is no obedience. Now, we're not saying that you're going to be perfect, but you are going on the road 
uh, to obedience. A wife who does not obey her husband is not submitting to her husband, according to the Scripture. Well, a person who is not obeying God is not submitting to God, according to the Scripture. A child who is not obeying their parents is not submitting to God, according to the Scripture. Words submit and obey many times are used interchangeably. And so the moment God regenerates a, a person... He instills in that person not only faith, but a repentance that submits. And if there is no submission to God's will in our lives, it is an indication that we are not regenerate, which means we don't have faith, which means we're not even saved. That's, that's the, the long and, and the short of it. Uh, and so these verses can test the presence of God's grace in our lives. Can we go for months on end without sensing any need for repentance for our lack of submission to God? Where there is repentance, there will be submission. Now, here's the cool part. Each of these commandments has an implied reward. And this one is implied by the word therefore, which harks back to verse 6. And I believe the implied reward is more grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so when we submit to God, we find God's grace flowing in our lives. We find more grace. We find abundant grace. And so even though there is a cost to repentance, and sometimes it is painful. I mean, it hurts. There is a cost. But even though there is a cost to repentance, it is worthwhile because God pours back into our lives his grace, his enabling, so that we can do the things God is calling us to do. Now, God will not give his grace to us if we don't have submission. Why in the world would he give more grace when we've not already used the grace that he's given to us, the grace uh, in, in, in repentance? And so there is a reward to those who submit. And what an incredibly liberating, freeing thing it is when you have repented, you've mortified yourself, and you feel God's grace lifting you up. And your worship notes, uh, someone said, when a soul has laid down its faults at the feet of God, it feels as though it had wings. Grace, more grace, liberating grace, freeing grace. Now, the second step is resistance. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, resistance is one of those inescapable things. You know, uh, Rushton, he talks about all kinds of inescapable concepts. Well, this is inescapable because earlier on in verse 4, he had said, if you're not resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil, automatically you're resisting God, and God's resisting you. But if you are submitting to God, this verse indicates the very next step is resistance to Satan. Don't ever think you can get away with no resistance. Resistance always happens. It's going to be in one direction or the other. You guys are going forward or you're going backward, resisting God or resisting Satan. Now, another way of saying this is that when repentance comes into our hearts, God opens the eyes of our understanding so that there is an antithesis where before things were fuzzy, now all of a sudden God makes them black and white. He makes us see where the battle lines lie. And if we're not willing to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's an evidence of a counterfeit repentance. And so we need to ask ourselves, after I confess my sins to God, does my repentance lead me to hate Satan and all that Satan stands for? Does my repentance stir up a holy anger for sin that that passage in 2 Corinthians 7 talks about? It will, if it's true repentance. It will usher you into resistance to Satan, resistance to temptation. Now, there's a cool promise appended here as well, and the promise is that Satan will flee from you. It's not, you know, resistance is futile. No, resistance is going to be very successful. Charles Spurgeon gave these cool words of encouragement. He said, Satan has no weapons of defense, and so when we resist him, he must flee. 
A Christian man has both defensive and offensive weapons. He has a shield as well as a sword, but Satan has fiery darts and nothing else. I never read of his having any shield, whatever. So when we resist him, he is bound to run away. He has no defense for himself, and the fact of our resistance is in itself a victory. That's a cool thought for me. Now, how do we resist then? There are a number of different ways, but the two principal ways are outlined in Revelation 12, where it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. There is uh, defensive weapons, but the primary offensive ones are Christ's blood and the word of our testimony. Claim Christ's blood and apply that blood to your mind, to your will, to your emotions, to your body, to all that you have and all that you are. Set it apart to God and tell Satan he has no part in you. You have applied the blood of Christ to him. Uh, uh, claim the victory of the blood and resist Satan with the blood. And then second, make affirmations of faith from Scripture of your authority over Satan, your victory over sin in Jesus Christ, how Satan's doom was sealed at the cross, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus did. He put the testimony of Scripture as being his testimony. And he, when every time Satan tempted him, he said, get behind me, Satan, for it is written. Okay, so he's resisting with the word of his testimony. When the scriptures become speech that comes out of our mouth, it becomes our testimony, not just something thought in your head. It has to be audibly spoken forth. You see, if, as long as that sheath, that, uh, that sword of the word is in the sheath, it's not going to slay Satan. He knows the scripture. It's when we unsheathe it and we use it against Satan that that proclamation of victory uh, conquers Satan. It strikes uh, blows at him, and every time that Christ did that, Satan left. Okay, the third feature in true repentance is the desire to draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, this implies restored relationship. If somebody asks for your forgiveness and you've granted it, but then they won't talk to you and they don't hang around you and you, you just sense that there is an ice that's still there, you can question whether there really was repentance because repentance draws to uh, restoration. It implies relationship. It also shows that you're no longer depending on yourself. You've repented of self-reliance and self-rule. Instead, you're approaching the throne and you're bowing before it. And even though you're ashamed, your shame does not drive you away from God. Instead, it causes you to cling to him in dependence. And again, this is a good test of genuine repentance. The world's repentance, according to Paul, is a sorrow that leads to death, to separation, uh, to despair. It does not lead you to restoration. Uh, whereas the, the, the biblical one does. Fifth quote from the bottom on your worship notes is from the Puritan writer George Swinnick, and he used this to distinguish between a false repentance and a true uh, depend, uh, repentance that leads to restoration of relationship and a renewed dependence on God. He said, a stroke from guilt, from wrath, broke Judas's heart into despair. A look from love, from Christ, broke Peter's into tears. Even though Peter weeps, he's not running away from God. He's not despairing. He's clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we draw near? Well, I pointed out last week, we do it through the means of grace, such as prayer, Bible reading, listening to the preached word, gathering together, fasting, uh, memorization of scripture, meditation. There's a number of different means of grace 
uh, that God uh, uses. And when people have been restored to God, they have a restored hunger for God's word put into their hearts, a restored hunger for God, for worship, for God's people. And so the means of grace, we can test ourselves. What kind of repentance do I have? Well, a, a true repentance that comes from God is going to drive us to the Lord, to the means of grace. It's not going to cause us to ignore the means of grace, whereas a false repentance, we're going to care less about the means of grace. We're just going to feel satisfied where we are at. Now, the reward is God draws near to us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And that is the immediate longing of a heart that's been granted repentance. You know, David, after the Bathsheba affair, uh, he cried out to God, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Well, this verse promises that if we draw near to God, he will not take away the comfort of his Holy Spirit. He will draw near to us. Fourth word associated with repentance is cleansing and seeking God's grace. And James divides it up into two parts. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. So that's dealing with the outward physical uh, actions. And then he goes on and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's dealing with the inward attitudes. And so true repentance is not purely outward and it's not purely inward. It encompasses the whole man. Now, I find the order that he gives here very interesting as well because I think it, it, it's reinforcing we cannot come with self-reformation. This is not something we stir up in ourselves. We have to draw near to God first before we can cleanse our hands. How did people draw near to God in the Old Testament? There's that temple imagery that I think he's pointing to. When they went into the temple, they had to go past that brazen altar where the sacrifice pointed to the atonement of Jesus. That's the only way they could draw near to God. Once they come into the temple, then there is the brazen altar. They open the spigot. They can wash their hands and their feet as a symbol of the cleansing that comes into their lives. And so it's only what Christ lives through us that really counts in God's eyes. Self-reformation means nothing. It has to be a cleansing through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but again, uh, that book, Returning to Holiness, is excellent on, on the issue of radical cleansing. It shows the process of systematically examining the various areas of your life, putting it under the blood of Christ. There's another book I'd mentioned to uh, Richard by Wesley Duell, D, I think it's D-U-E-W-E-L uh, or something like that, and it's called Measuring Your Life. I've had that for a number of years, and it's even more in-depth. Incredible book for examining uh, yourself in terms of the need for cleansing. Fifth feature is sorrow. Now, verse 9, oh, man, get a load of this. Verse 9 is such a rebuke to the flippant attitudes towards sin that people have. You know, where they just casually, you know, ask God to uh, forgive them. It's almost as if, you know, oh, they noticed a little piece of lint on their shirt and they just kind of lightly flick it off and there's no thought about it at all. And James says, no way, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Don't be laughing. Don't be treating sin in a trivial and a trite way. He says, I want you to mourn. Now, I want you to look at those words in verse 9. I want you to examine your heart and ask yourself, does that seem extreme? Does that seem, you know, like exaggeration on the part of, of James? Does that seem like it's being overly emotional? Well, I would challenge you to, to think that if this seems extreme, it is an indication, indeed, that God has not given to you repentance. He has not opened the eyes of your understanding because if you looked at your sin as God looked at, you could not but weep. 
If you saw the heinousness, the depth of depravity in your own heart, if God had illumined your eyes to that, yes, this would seem like exactly where God leads our spirit to be. And so it is not an exaggeration at all. True repentance makes us see the wretchedness of our nature. A.W. Pink says that's the reason that uh, no man can have repentance apart from a gift from God. We can't have faith. We can't have repentance. It's sovereignly given. Sovereignly given by God. He also said true repentance abhors gentle names for sin, nor does it seek to cloak wickedness. That which, while being tempted, is thought of as no great offense, when later is truly repented of, is acknowledged to be heinous. Sin before its commission often appears unto the mind as a very small evil, but when grace acts in a way of repentance for it, then the false glamour disappears and it is viewed in its dreadful malignity and loathed exceedingly. And so this is another test of our hearts as to whether we have what the Westminster Confession calls an evangelical grace, something that God's grace alone could produce, or if we have a self-generated repentance. You know, much of my repentance in the past was purely self-generated. You know, I, I, I felt guilty. I didn't want to go to hell. You know, I didn't want to have punishment. You know, you repent. You just feel like, oh, boy, I better not go to bed without repenting. We'll say, okay, please forgive me. No, self-generated repentance does not have these kind of characteristics, but when God, by His grace, works in our hearts as we come through the means of grace, we are undone. We're undone, and we're cast upon the Lord for, for His grace. A true repentance goes deep. It is not satisfied with outer appearances. It goes into the inner recesses of our hearts and it sees the filth and the garbage that is in there and it cries out to God in sorrow. And so when you see these books, and hopefully you'll pick up some of these books from, from Richard, but when you see these books and you work your way through it, do it prayerfully. Cry out to God, Lord, grant to me a heart of repentance. Grant to me a heart of revival. Renew my mind and my will and my emotions. Help me to hate the things that you hate and to love the things that you love. Please, Lord, in myself, I am indifferent to sin, and I need your grace of repentance if I am to enter into the kind of revival that my heart longs for. Since God alone gives it, Prayer alone can receive it, and so pray for that kind of repentance that leads to revival. Now, implied reward for this is the opposite of sorrow, namely comfort and joy. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Now, the irony of that, if you, if you know the Greek, is that it literally means happy are those who mourn. I mean, just, it's just striking to you. Happy are those who mourn, joyful are those who mourn. How in the world can that be? For they shall be comforted. You see, God does not comfort, and He does not bring joy to those who are either indifferent to sin or who have self-generated repentance. They never can get over their, 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 their guilt. He doesn't give that, because God only finishes what He starts. He didn't finish what your heart is beginning to generate. He's not interested in finishing what you have started. He only finishes what he starts. But let me tell you something. When he has started repentance in your heart, it will work out into joy and restoration and comfort. It is guaranteed. David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's exactly what happened. Well, then finally, James says that true repentance evidences humility. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, humbling oneself is exposing our pride, crucifying our pride, deliberately allowing ourselves to be wounded and vulnerable before God. Now, in the Scripture, sometimes this idea of humbling ourselves 
even has the, and it's a parallel with afflicting ourselves, it even has the idea of fasting. It's how seriously we take our sins. It becomes a synonym for fasting. But the chief characteristic is to see yourself as God does. And again, this makes sense. If, if repentance is in major part the illumination of our understanding, and I think that's the major part of it, which affects our emotions, affects our will, if it's the opening up of our understanding to look at our sins as God sees it, well, that makes perfect sense. Horatius Bonar, the author of Not What My Hands Have Done, and there's other hymns that he wrote of God's grace, he said this, In all unbelief there are two things, a good opinion of self and a bad opinion of God. So long as these things exist, it is impossible for an inquirer to find rest. His good opinion of himself makes him think it quite possible to win God's favor by his own religious performances. The object of the Holy Spirit's work in convicting of sin is to alter the sinner's opinion of himself and so to reduce his estimate of his own character that he will think of himself as God does. And later on the page he says it takes a great deal to destroy man's good opinion of himself. And even after he has lost his good opinion of his works, he retains a good opinion of his heart. And even after he has lost that, he holds fast his good opinion of his religious duties. And so a person who is arrogant and hot and defensive has not yet this day tasted of the repentance that comes from God's throne. John the Baptist saw the repentance of the Pharisees and he said it's not real repentance. It doesn't even closely resemble real repentance. He says, show forth the fruits of repentance. Repentance, the works that are meet for repentance. And so it's my prayer that our church and the churches of this city would be granted the grace of repentance in such measure that we would enter fully into the streams of grace and revival that God says always follows such repentance. The only way to be lifted up is by going down. So it's my prayer the Lord would lift them up, us up, in the streams of His grace. Amen. Father God, we come to you as a people who are needy of your gift, your wonderful gift, your precious gift of repentance. Father, we are toast without that. We would face your judgments without that. And we beseech you, Father, not to allow any one of us to be satisfied with a human-generated repentance. Open the eyes of our understanding, O God, so that we can see the sinfulness of sin, the heinousness of sin, and the righteousness and the holiness of your character. Help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to be filled from the table of your grace. Father, do bless this people. It is our desire that we might enter into the kind of revival and reformation and that the church as a whole would enter into that revival and reformation as well. But we come and bow ourselves before your throne and say, Lord, you are our suzerain. Our suzerain. You are our king. And you have promised in your covenant that if we acknowledge your laws, we do not secede from you. We cling to you. We abide in you. That we can ask anything that we want and you will grant it. Father, we want the grace of repentance and the joy and the revival that comes from that. We humble ourselves before you, Lord, and we pray that you would lift us up. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen.